message comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, and it reads like this. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing that you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of Samaritans. This is the blessed word from our Lord. You may be seated. Guys, we are currently in the book of Acts, and we are going through uh, this series uh, picking back up on it, as it were, actually, uh, and I have been truly amazed at at uh, hearing what the Word of God says in the book of Acts and how the church began, how the gospel started to go out and start to spread to so many places. And in our story this morning, we have another account of how the gospel began to go out outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea into new territory. And we are so, uh, so blessed to hear how the gospel went out because it was from stories like this, how the gospel went out, how it began to go out, is why those of us who are in this room who are in Christ uh, can say that we are in Christ because the gospel did, in fact, go out. Amen? And so we are here, uh, for those of us who are in Christ, thankful for this. Before I jump into the Word, though, I want to ask you a question. Does anybody remember the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Just raise your hand. Raise your hand if this is like a, a top five movie for you of all time. Anybody? Oh, Wanda? All right, good. Okay, I see you guys. All right, all right. So, so when I watched The Wizard of Oz as a kid, I had a different take on it. Um, I, you know, I thought that the wizard himself was just a mean old kook. That's honestly what I thought, that this guy was just, just, just a jerk, if you will, 
So Dorothy gets over there. She meets some friends uh, in, in Oz, and she wants to get back home. So they go on this, this amazing adventure to get uh, to where the wizard himself is. They walk in there, and he's mean. He's like yelling at them. There's fire coming up from the floor. Like it's just kind of scary. And, and, but, they, uh, but they stood there, and they were afraid of the wizard. They were really afraid of him. And they had this awe and this respect for this wizard. And then if you all remember, in the movie, the dog's name, which is Toto, Toto runs over there to this curtain as the wizard is just yelling, pulls back the curtain, and there's this guy standing there. And he's turning all these knobs, he's turning these wheels, he's pulling these levers, he's trying to yell into this microphone. And then even after... Even after they see him, he turns around and looks at them, and they're looking right at him. He still tries to talk into the microphone to claim that he is the Wizard of Oz, the, the all-respectful, all-inspiring Wizard of Oz. But what happened to their perception of the wizard after the curtain was pulled back? He's just a guy. The awe, the reverence, the respect that they had as they were afraid to approach the great wizard, all of a sudden diminished. They saw behind the curtain and the power and the esteem that the wizard once had no longer had that to them. When we apply this truth in a theological context, we can begin to get ourselves into trouble. Because as human beings, what our hearts naturally do is try to elevate the status of man. And when we elevate the status of man, what we unintentionally do is we lower the status of God. When we begin to lower the status of God, we lose the awe and the reverence and the respect of who God is. When we try to put ourselves in the place of God, we get ourselves into trouble. And we're going to hear about this man whose name is Simon. And Simon heard the gospel, even says here that he believed but yet he was still trying to put himself in the place of God. So we are going to dive in to this passage. And I have three truths for us this morning as we dive into it. And the first truth is that the power of the gospel persuades. The power of the gospel persuades. Now we got this guy named Philip. Philip, who, who has literally been commissioned out to, to spread the gospel. He is a Jew. He has come from Jerusalem. He is one of the ones who has gone out because of the death of Stephen. The death of Stephen was kind of a catalyst for the gospel to begin to go out into these other places. So Philip was one of the ones who was able to go out because of this catalyst. So as he begins to go out, he finds himself in Samaria. And in Samaria, we, we read before, as you heard Jerry preach last week, that he was 
He was exercising demons out of people. He was removing unclean spirits. He was, he was healing people who had been paralyzed for a very long time. He was performing all of these signs, these wonders, these miracles. He was doing amazing things. But then we come to this next guy. immediately jumps here to Simon. This is where we start. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying that this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. See, Simon is a magician or, or a sorcerer. That is who he is. And it says here that the people were amazed at him. The word in Greek for amazed literally means to be astonished or bewitched. They, literally what that means is that they, they were so amazed at, at who this guy was and what he was doing that they couldn't even take their eyes off of him. They were just amazed and astonished. They just kept watching him like, oh man, this guy is absolutely amazing. And it wasn't just a few people that were following him. There was many people who were following him. And it says here that it was from the least to the greatest, which literally means that people who were rich to people who were poor, people who were popular to people who weren't, there was a multitude of people who followed this guy and kept their eyes on him at all times because they were so amazed at what he could do. And in verse 9, we immediately see what he thinks about himself. What does he say here? Saying that he himself was somebody great. Simon was saying that he himself was somebody great. Not only was he saying that, but the people that were following him literally said that this man is the power of God that is called great. They did not say that he has the power of God. They said that he is the power of God, which is called great. That is what they perceived him as. As a matter of fact, we do not have much as far as story of Simon in the biblical record. But if we look through church history, people like Ignatius and others spoke about this same Simon that we are reading about. And they said this, the people who were following him regarded him as the grand vizier of the supreme God, the channel both of divine power and of divine revelation. And he is known as the father of all Gnostic heresies. This is the same Simon. People were following him, calling him the power of God, that he could channel the divine power and divine revelation from God whenever he wanted to, at will, that he had the authority to do that. And then we see verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
See, Simon up to this point was out there to build his own kingdom. He was making his own name great. He was building his kingdom. He had his group of followers that were following him, and he was placing himself where only God belongs. He was trying to build his own kingdom. Then Philip comes in. Philip, who is a Jew, walking into Samaria, walks in, begins preaching the gospel, and then all of a sudden their ears begin to perk up. He came preaching the gospel. Here's what it does not say. It was not that the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Philip was doing. Remember, he was healing people who were paralyzed. He was exercising demons from people. It does not say that it was because he was doing that that the people listened. No. Verse 12 clearly says, When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of who? Jesus Christ. You see, they were amazed at Simon, but they had belief in Jesus. You see, amazement attracts you, but belief keeps you. Amazement attracts you, but belief keeps you. Let me give you an illustration. I am an avid Atlanta Braves fan. And I have been, what you would call, amazed at the talent that the Braves had. And for years, I would be. I would just be amazed. And by, by amazed, I'd be like, oh, we got some great players. I'll tune in and watch every so often. You know, see a game here and there. Oh, look, we made the postseason. I, we won't go far, I promise. And, and then I would just check out. That would be it. This year was different, though. This year, I actually believed that the Atlanta Braves could do it all, that they could get to the World Series and that they could actually win. So what changed in me? So when I actually believed that they could do it, then I was in every postseason game, I was watching every pitch. I was dissecting everything. I was texting my cousin Jesse and my uncle Timmy between every pitch. Why didn't we swing at that? Why do we, what are we doing? Our defense looks awful, which is usually just how a Braves fan talks to each other. And like that, I was legitimately in it, watching every pitch. I truly believed, which means that because I truly believed that they could do it, it kept me engaged. It kept me involved. It wasn't just, oh, you know, we, we might win a game or two, but that's not it. No, I believed that they could, so my, my whole self was in it. And guys, can I tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ persuades our hearts to come in and believe in so much of a way that we pour our entire selves into it? That's what it does for us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus who came, who lived a humble life, who was the king over everything, wrapped himself in human flesh to come here to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to seek and to save the lost. So much so that it would take him to the cross of Calvary and he would die on that cross taking our sin and our shame on his shoulders so that we don't have to face the condemnation that is hell. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the Samaritans heard that, they said, we want to be a part of that. I see you healing people. I see you healing bones that have been broken. I see you exercising demons out of people. But what truly has me involved with what you're saying is this man named Jesus, and I want to follow him. That's what was happening to the Samaritans. It was the gospel that was persuading them. It was not the amazement of the events that were occurring. It was the name of Jesus Christ. It was the following of his kingdom, not 
Simons. The question that I have for you, are you amazed at man or does the gospel call you to worship Jesus? Are you amazed at man or does the gospel call you to worship Jesus? Because there is only one kingdom that we are living for, and that's his. Truth number one is that the power of the gospel persuades. Truth number two is that the power of the Holy Spirit unites. The power of the Holy Spirit unites. Start in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. This is the A-team, guys. Peter and John is the A-team. They sent them. And Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's quite a bit to, to unpack here, but we have to look back for just a second. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives them a command to go, or, or that they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and they will go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But what we probably don't know, I didn't realize this until I was actually doing sermon prep, is that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus actually told his disciples that they could not go to Samaria or any Samaritan village. He prohibited them from doing that. They weren't allowed to do it. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Guys, Samaria was their rival. It wasn't just a random place that was a little bit further out. They didn't like Samaria. When Jesus said Samaria, it probably shocked them. Why Samaria? Matter of fact, at one point, John wanted to rain fire down on a Samaritan village. That's how much they didn't like him. But we have to ask this question, this lingering question that's hanging over this passage before we talk more about this. Why didn't the Holy Spirit come down when the people believed? Why did it take so long? This particular instance is the exception to what Scripture claims is the proper uh, participation in salvation. You see, in the point of conversion, the believer believes, repents, and then the Holy Spirit comes over them all in one moment. These all occur at the same time time. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. This one example here in Acts chapter 9 is the exception to the rule, and here's why. Because the gospel up to this point had not made its way to Samaria. This particular moment is called the Samaritan Pentecost. Why is this so important? Why is it important that the gospel got here? Because the rivalry that was the Jews in Jerusalem and Samaria 
was nearly a thousand years old. It puts every rivalry that we think to shame. It started after King Solomon had been king, after he uh, was no longer king. The kingdoms actually split in half. There was a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, their capital, Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah, their capital, Jerusalem. And for years and years and years, they fought battles against each other. They hated each other. Their national apostasy would corrupt the other. It was ugly. For generations, this happened. And then Assyria overcame the northern kingdom and Samaria, placed them in exile. And then what they did, what Assyria would do when they would come and capture a country or a nation like this is that they would, they would import people from other places that they had destroyed. So they would bring in outsiders and then they would begin to deport the ones who lived there and begin to mix bloodlines. So after the exiles were finished, after the people of Samaria were back in their land, after the Jews were back in Jerusalem, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem looked at the Samaritans that they were half-bloods because their ethnicities had been mixed. And the Samaritans wanted to build a kingdom, or not a kingdom, I apologize, a temple, and the Jews in Jerusalem would not help them, so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim as a rival temple to the temple that was in Jerusalem. This rivalry was bad. They were not good. As a matter of fact, when the Jews in Jerusalem were rebuilding their temple, the Samaritans tried to attack them. This rivalry was, puts any rivalry that we have to shame. And if I were to illustrate the best way I could, so when I came to North Carolina, there was a Duke-Carolina rivalry that was like, it's a real thing. Raise your hand if you're a Duke fan. Raise your hand if you're a Carolina fan. Okay. <laughs> so this is what it would be like. Duke is playing for the national championship. This is hypothetical, although it's probably more likely. Duke is playing for the national championship game. And there is a Carolina fan who decides to host a dinner at their house so the Duke fans can come to their house and watch Duke play in the national championship game. So you're having people at your house to watch your rival team play for a championship while you feed them and host them in your home. That's probably unheard of around here. This particular instance in the book of Acts where the Jews in Jerusalem would come to Samaria so the Holy Spirit could come over them was not about whether or not this is the real process of salvation. As a matter of fact, it was proof that the Holy Spirit himself can tear down the dividing walls between rivals. That the most hostile of enemies could be could be brought under the same roof to sit at the same table to be brought into the household of God. They are no longer rivals, but they are family together, eating together, participating in the same grace and mercy that Jesus Christ has brought to them. That's what's happening here. It's not an overly theological uh, uh, debate that we should understand that whether or not they should have an apostolic hand put the Holy Spirit on them. It is not that at all. It is that the not even the greatest of rivalries that we can conceive can tear apart the family of God. 
None of that. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 says this, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you are in this room and you are in Christ, then we are in the same family of God. We eat at the same table. We all participate in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. When we come together for communion, the Holy Spirit himself is uniting us. It is not a political party that unites us. It is not a place that we live that unites us. It is not a sports team that unites us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings us together, that puts us into a new family that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's who we are. The Holy Spirit has the power to do that. We love those who think differently. We embrace those who hurt us, and we give to those who anger us. We see that the power of the Holy Spirit unites. And lastly, the gifts of God are given for his glory. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, we saw earlier, has already said he believed. Not only has he already said he believed, but he was actually following Philip for, for a short while. He was following him, seeing all that Philip could do. But his story is a little bit different than the rest of the Samaritans who were following him. When he saw this power, he wanted a piece of the pie. And this word for power is different than the word for power that the Samaritans were calling him to earlier. It's two different words for power. This particular word for power is an authority that he wanted to use it at will, at command. Pride in Simon was brought to the forefront once again. And then Peter, remember this is Peter, this is Timid Peter, right? This is the one who puts his foot in his mouth all through the Gospels, Peter, until Pentecost, and Peter was given the Holy Spirit and the boldness that came over him. And this is what he says to Simon here. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Earlier in Acts, we know that Peter and John were asked for money. And they didn't have any to give. And they said, we, silver and gold, we don't have, but we'll give you what we do have. And that's the gospel of Jesus. Now, they're being offered money. And they do not take it. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not something that can be bought. Gifts 
are gifts because they are given, not because they are earned. The Holy Spirit is bestowed upon those who choose to follow Jesus Christ. Bestowed, the word literally means to not be earned, given out of free grace. He tells him, Peter says, number one, you can't buy this. And number two, Simon, your heart is still the issue here. Your heart is still the issue here. But I thought, I thought he believed. I thought he believed. I thought he believed that Jesus is who he said he was, that he would be baptized. He believed through baptism. And then he followed Philip like, a, like his own little disciple, that he would follow him. No, belief is not where it stops. James 2, 9 says that even the demons believe and they, they shudder at the thought of God. You see, the word that Peter uses that grips to the core is this word, Repent. Repent. Belief without repentance makes you lost. Repentance is a very heavy topic in the New Testament. Luke 13, 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will awake all likewise perish. Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is the acknowledgement, confession, and turning away from sin. It's not just knowing what the sin is. It's acknowledging it. It's confessing it. And then it is turning away. It is understanding that you can't buy God's forgiveness. He gives it through his son, Jesus Christ. And do you know what Jesus says about himself? He says that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus says that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do you realize that's the only time in Scripture that Jesus says anything about his heart? He does not say that I'm demanding or authoritative. He does not say that I'm condemning or pointing my finger. He says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. And do you know that when we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin, and we turn away from that sin, do you know that Jesus, his action is not to point a finger at you? To make you feel your shame more than you already do? Jesus' response to this action of repentance is open arms. My child, welcome home. His forgiveness is not something to earned. Jesus takes Joy in forgiveness. He takes joy in it. 
And when we come to him, he gives it. That is who he is. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to clean ourselves. We don't have to get rid of our burdens before we come to him. As a matter of fact, our burden itself is what gives us access to come to him in the first place. That he would help us get rid of it. That he would take it off of us. That is who he is. Simon was told to pray. Instead, he asks for prayer. But even in his prayer, seems more worried about the wrath of God more so than forgiveness. God's forgiveness and his giving of the Holy Spirit for his glory, he gives them because while we are beneficiaries of the gifts, these gifts are not for us to hoard. He gives us gifts to give back to him. The gifts of God are to mobilize us for his kingdom. We cannot use his gifts that he has given to us for his kingdom if we are trying to build our own. We're in ready to launch uh, is, a, is the parenting class that I'm teaching right now in Equip You. And about three, four weeks ago, uh, the, the class, uh, in the class, they have, uh, you have homework each week. And one of the homework assignments was to pray a bold prayer over your children. And this bold prayer over your children is, Lord, if you are preparing my son to be a missionary overseas in a hostile land, Prepare my heart and equip him and send him. That was what our homework was. You know how hard that was to pray? It was like throwing up a rock. It just kept getting stuck right here. Like I wanted to say it. I knew I should say it. But if I say it, he'll do it. (laughs) Like if I pray a bold prayer like that, What if he does? By the fourth night of praying that prayer, God had already worked on me, already worked on my heart, that if he does, if my son Christian becomes a missionary and goes into a hostile territory to spread the gospel, one person gets saved and then he is killed overseas, then all glory to God. Then he fulfilled his purpose. Christian is a gift that was given to me, not for me to hoard in my house, but to launch him out for the kingdom of God. Are the gifts God has given you, are you hoarding them like artwork on your walls? Or are you leveraging them for the kingdom of God? Philip, Peter, and John, we see them furthering the kingdom of God, and we see Simon, who was not. It is my prayer that as a body of Christ, as believers, that we see his gifts, we thank him for for every single one of them, and we give them back. We give them back. Let's pray. God, you are so, so good. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word this morning that we, that we would truly, truly take it to heart, that we would see your kingdom, 
in a glorious light. Lord, I thank you that we have the gospel, that we have a gospel that persuades us, the gospel of Jesus Christ that pulls us in, that, that is the, the good news of salvation, that we are set free from sin, that we have eternal life, that we have life everlasting in you. Lord, I thank you that we have a, a Holy Spirit that comes in and unites us. It, it begins to transform us from the inside out, but it unites people who would not be united any other way. And God, I thank you for the gifts that you are giving us daily. The very breath that we breathe right now is nothing short of your grace. I pray that we take these gifts and we use them for your kingdom. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So good to be with you today.